Welcome to the Austrian American History Podcast, a podcast featuring interviews with scholars relating to history, politics, economics, law, and cultural studies. I am your host, Patrick Shank, and I'm the public historian for the Botsdieber Foundation. In this episode of the podcast, I'm talking to Allison Orton. Allison is a PhD candidate at the Department of History at the University of Illinois at Chicago and received a grant from the Botsdieber Foundation in 2015. Her dissertation examines ethnic self-identification through the lens of beer. Allison's study traces conflict and identity in the Habsburg Empire between Czech and German styles of brewing and follows those developments as immigrants settled in the United States and fought to continue their traditions in a new land. Hello, Allison, and thank you for joining us. It is a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me, of course. Pretty much just to jump right in because it's such a fascinating topic, how did you decide to study such a complex historic concept of ethnic identity through the use of beer? Uh, well, I, I began my PhD program thinking I would do something very different. I was thinking about studying urban to rural migration of U.S. immigrants. So, But I have always been keenly interested in how people understand themselves with respect to their surroundings or kind of how we all shift our views of ourselves according to the situation. And through a series of I guess what I call happy coincidences, my project changed and morphed through a few variations. The switch to beer and identification came following a series of conversations with my advisor and, and uh, quite a few other scholars, including those who work with national indifference in East Central Europe, American labor historians, and scholars who study material culture, among other things. Um, and I guess the beauty of using beer as a lens through which to study national self-identification is that in the Czech lands, its production and consumption transcended class and gender lines, making it really an ideal tool to help us understand how, how those who, who really left two Britain records understood nationalism. So tracing participation in or extension from events like ostensibly nationalist riots where brewery property was destroyed, or in boycotts of beer, or unionization movements that took nationalist overtones, or uh, consumption patterns, they, these things all really speak volumes about how traditionally underrepresented groups place themselves within the nationalist rhetoric of the time. And I really want to say, you know, thanks to the generous grant from the Botsieber Institute, I was able to pursue this topic and conduct the necessary research to bring it to its fruition. Oh, great. Um, and actually, one kind of question to go off of that. Um, you did spend like a year in Europe conducting research. so. What were some of the most surprising things you found either in the archives or even outside the archives that really struck you and kind of helped form this dissertation? There were a number of surprises. Um, outside of the archives, I remember when I first arrived in Pilsen in the Czech Republic and walking down the streets, looking at the facades of buildings that actually had like carvings of beer signs or beer glasses and uh, scenes of brewing painted on the buildings, and I really felt like I had almost walked in, into a town that was an archive in itself. Hmm. Um, and within the archives, uh, my, my most favorite surprise probably came right as I was about to return to the U.S. Uh, late last summer. I'd, I'd really been struggling to find a hook that would pull together the European and the U.S. sides of my dissertation, and about a week before I was supposed to return, I stumbled upon a perfect communication exchange in a Czech brewery workers periodical that I did not know existed. I had found it at the last moment. Um, a Pilsen trained brewer named Karl Baranek who migrated to Chicago sent regular 
detailed reports about the activities and conditions of Czech-speaking and German-speaking brewery workers in the U.S. I, I, his reports included comparisons between working conditions in the Czech lands in the U.S., as well as, and this was great for me, descriptions of cooperation, conflict, and really kind of a fluidity between those who spoke Czech and those who spoke, spoke German and worked, worked in the U.S. brewing industry. So I couldn't have asked for a better way to transition the two sections of my dissertation. That is a pretty great find. So I guess kind of building off that then, I'm kind of drawing this transatlantic connection between the brewers in Czech and Germany and the United States. So kind of just building off those kind of correspondence. When they did uh, come over to the United States, how did their interactions change um, compared to when they were in Europe? And what kind of forces did they find in the United States that was kind of pushing them either to come together where the, and originally in the brewing cultures in Germany and Czech, they kind of conflicted? I would say that pretty obvious that immigrants from Central Europe changed the landscape of beer culture in the U.S. Uh, they, they, they shaped our current brewing industry and beer culture. And um, in a large part, this is because immigrants from this region founded, worked at, and, and really patronized the majority of large-scale breweries that dominate US, the U.S. brewing industry today. Uh, but their dominance was met with significant resistance, as, as you mentioned. And in the last half of the 19th century and 20th century, nativist and temperance and prohibition movements often worked in tandem to portray the beer production and drinking cultures of immigrant groups like Germans and Czechs as corrupting to the moral fabric of the U.S. It would be an oversimplification to say that those who were nationalist activists overseas and migrated to the U.S. left behind all of their antagonisms, but upon meeting the resistance to beer production and consumption here, tensions tended to soften. So I'd say the majority of brewery workers in, this, in the U.S. in this period either identified as ethnically Czech or ethnically German. Some were immigrants, some were born, uh, were children of immigrants. But yet, brewery workers' organizations reported little antagonism between the two. There were, the thing I see, the complaint I see most frequently between Czech, ethnically Czech and ethnically German brewery workers is that union proceedings were often held in German and not in Czech. But I think overall it's really safe to say that, that when faced with a life of livelihood in the face of temperance and prohibition and anti-immigrant sentiments, ethnic identification really took a backseat to economic concerns. Hmm. Yeah, so that's really interesting. Um, I guess jumping back then to Europe and brewing habits in Europe, um, you mentioned briefly these um, like beer boycotts. I'm actually kind of interested to see the interplay between the nationalism that kind of and the national rhetoric that was pushed by the press and some of the breweries, and then how that kind of interacted with the need for capitalism and how the average beer drinker kind of seemed more interested with the taste and the price of the beer than who was really making it. So I guess the question is kind of how do those two views come to a head during these boycotts, and then how did it shape how the beer was understood after the boycotts ended? Well, and this is, this is a great question, and one that I, as I proceed with my dissertation, I'm still, <clears throat> excuse me, continuing to answer more thoroughly. But as the boycotts of Pilsner, and occasionally more broadly of all beers considered, quote, Czech, moved from local, Pilsner, Pilsner local or regional, to international level, the interplay between really a number of factors, I mean, there's nationalism, capitalism, class, and empire would be the primary ones that I, I think of mostly. This interplay became increasingly fascinating and increasingly complex. Um, 
Probably one of my favorite examples of this from my research comes from a humorous article from about a drunken Viennese man uh, who is willing to go along with other nationalist actions, with other German nationalist actions, but when nationalist activists tell him which beers he can and cannot drink, he becomes infuriated. He feels emasculated. He feels that it's the sacred right of the man of the house to choose his own beer. So this is just one example from my sources that, that really demonstrates how some or all of these factors play different roles in different places. So beer was really understood very differently according to the situation. And the interesting thing about the beer boycotts themselves is that they went on for many years. They went on all the way through the end of World War I, and actually post-World War I, there was a period of time when the Czechs, when Czechoslovakia refused to export beer to Austria or Germany. And I'm not sure, I, I didn't find a whole lot of records on this, but I know that there was, they, they tried withholding. But the boycotts in the period that I'm talking about, the nationalist boycotts, instead of helping form more of a cohesive pro-nationalist stance. They instead push some people away from the nationalist method, message, like you mentioned, people thinking with their stomachs and their pocketbooks. Um, perhaps an all-out boycott was one step too far for many who were willing to avoid patronizing other businesses or maybe purchasing other goods in the name of nat nationalism. Thus, I think beer and beer drinking can really show us a new historical vantage point from which to examine responses to these nationalist narratives. Um, I don't know that there was any solid outcome at the end where I can say, and this is exactly what the result of these boycotts were, because they've, it varied so much from place to place and time to time. Okay, so nationalistic view was important to most of the people, but it wasn't the only thing driving their actions, in, in a sense. Well, I, I think it varied in levels of importance. To some people, obviously, it was very important. To a lot of people, it was not the driving force. I, I think that there was probably overall more indifference to it and people went along with it for, for expediency's sake in some cases, like, okay, I'm not going to get in trouble if I just follow this nationalist rhetoric right now. These people won't yell at me, so I'll do it. Um, I think it was highly situational uh, for, for most people. Okay, interesting. And one other kind of question I had with this, with the boycotts, was I know you mentioned in uh, your dissertation that there's also this idea of like, empire. People like in like, Vienna see the like, Pilsner-style beer not as a Czech or a German identity, but as a Hasburg Empire identity. Yeah. So how does this kind of come in and kind of add a whole another dimension to just the nationalistic view? Yeah, it was fun when I, I started finding these documents and, and the... the the humorous newspaper excerpts, Vienna had a number of great uh, humor magazines, and they loved to talk about beer, which was perfect for me. I, I actually thought about doing a separate article on humorous Viennese newspaper coverage of Pilsner and Czech beer. But anyway, but then on a, on a higher level, documents that I found at the Austrian State Archives, I guess, made it really clear that beer produced in the Czech lands was, was very much an integral part of the it, empire's economy and culture. There, there was a certain pride in the fact that Pilsner beer or other beer from the Czech lands was served to visiting dignitaries and daily to the royal family itself. Uh, there's no question that beer produced in the Czech lands belonged to the empire as a whole. And, but right now I'm working through a stack of documents about the government's efforts to defend the name Pilsner beer 
They were trying to enforce the trademark of the name so that only beer produced in Pilsen itself could carry the name Pilsner or Pilsner style. And the fact that the government poured huge amounts of money and time into defending the name Pilsner, especially against breweries in Germany who hoped to stop the importation of Czech Pilsner beer into Germany, but the fact that the government spent so much time and resources defending this name also speaks volumes about its importance. Of course, as we know, their efforts were unsuccessful, but Pilsner style really is one of the most successful and most popular styles in the world today. You walk into a, a you know, a, anywhere where you can buy beer and there's almost always at least one Pilsner style, and it's certainly not brewed in Pilsen, or most of the time it's not on the menu. So I guess kind of building off this as well, um, so once these breweries have to self-identify or classify as either German or Czech during this like, boycott period, um, does this type of identification affect the breweries later on in terms of like advertising or hiring in that they then signal more towards the Czech or the Germans that they chose to identify with? It, the nationalist boycott activity definitely had an effect. However, it, it wasn't necessarily a matter of breweries, breweries having to self-identify as either Czech or German. The reality of the situation was that there were very few, if any, purely Czech or purely German breweries. Uh, most had mixed boards of directors, mixed uh, workforces, etc., mixed investment, most mixed shareholders. Some breweries did choose an ethnic affiliation, but in most cases this seemed to be based more on economic strategy than on a strong allegiance to one nationalist camp or the other. So in, if you talk about a border town like Asch, where you have a huge German population, the majority of the town is German, their brewery was vehemently German. But this, for them, was most likely very economically expedient. If they tried to say that they weren't German or didn't care, it probably would have hurt their business. But, um, on the other hand, some of the large breweries I studied actively fought to remain free of any national identification. And for example, the Pilsner Citizens Brewery, which is now the world-famous Pilsner Quell that we all know and love, uh, or know and appreciate at least, was it was labeled as Czech by nationalist activists, despite the fact that the brewery's leadership and workforce was in most ways almost equally split between those who identified as Czech and those who identified as German. The Citizens Brewery actively opposed being called Czech nationalists, and they launched an extensive advertising campaign outlining its belief in remaining above nationalist strife. They peppered newspapers all across, across the empire, in Germany, in Switzerland, in Belgium, you can find ads saying, we are not purely Czech. We actually believe that we need to remain above all nationalist strife. At the same time, in Pilsen, the second largest brewery, which was the first Pilsner joint stock brewery, used its Germanness as a major selling factor in garnering international business. It was trying to take over any business that might be lost from the citizens' brewery by calls to boycott the Czech brewery. But all the while, again, more than 30% of the workforce at the Pilsner, at Pilsner's Joint Stock Brewery was also self-identified Czech. And while I can't say with any certainty that hiring was affected, I do know that numerous Czech workers chose to leave their position at the German-identified Joint Stock Brewery following a series of attacks by their German co-workers. So I, but I can't tell you who they were replaced with. I never found records that, that would give me a hint. Okay. Um, and I guess kind of one other kind of question related to this that we noticed in uh, your dissertation was that when they originally invented the um, 
the Pilsner, the Germ- there was a German brewer who was involved at the start of this, like Czech style, as they later called it. So we kind of saw that it was slightly ironic that later, that, like they were trying to make it German again, but it was already German to begin with in a sense. Um, and so it was this kind of underlying history of the beer brought up during these boycotts and this attempt to counteract the nationalistic attacks? Actually, no. The history of the brewery, well, well, if you visit Pilsner Recall today and if you look at sources, histories of the brewery published, uh, the brewery was founded in 1842. So from 1842 on, they're very proud of the fact that they brought in this Bavarian brewmaster, Josef Grohl, right? But during these nationalist boycotts, the activists decided to ignore, they chose to ignore the origin story of the Pilsner style. Um, among Czech nationalists, of course, it makes sense. However, among German nationalists, it's a bit more perplexing. But if you consider how much the German nationalists wanted to paint the Czech citizens' brewery, and erroneously so, as a purely Czech enterprise, it makes a bit more sense. Hmm. Okay. That does kind of clear up a little bit. Does seem like it should be ironic that there's this huge conflict, even though it, to begin with it was a multi-ethnic beer to it, begin with. It is, and this is, I mean, this is kind of the beauty of, of the topic, is that it's really hard to pin down what, can you give beer an ethnicity? Can you give beer a national identity? It's, it's very difficult to do this, because in almost every case, you have ingredients from other places, people from other places. It's something that... Uh, that's one of the reasons I love this topic so much is because there is no clear, there's, there's nothing that's 100% clear about it. You have to really dig and tease out all of the details. Mm, definitely. I guess, I guess jumping back a bit more towards the, the transatlantic connection of your dissertation and uh, the immigration of these brewers and the bringing over that culture as well. So once they do come, I guess how do they continue with their culture and make sure that it becomes ingrained and kind of become the U.S. culture in a sense. Like, is there any major transformation in terms of what they originally had to make it, make it more American in a sense? That's, uh, you know, getting into questions of assimilation into the U.S. is it, it's interesting to see. Obviously, there were many things that were kept and many things that were let go as, as immigrant groups stay. I, I think that these immigrant groups are very similar to pretty much every wave of immigrant groups that has come to the U.S. in that, yes, there are certain parts of the culture that are maintained, certain parts of the culture are absorbed by American culture, certain parts are not. Um, I did find it amusing to read in a Chicago newspaper from uh, probably the mid-1890s. They were marveling that Czechs were more willing to give up their language than their beer um, hmm. when they migrated. So it, it's, um, yeah, that's... That question, it's hard to answer uh, because you really, you need to trace so many different threads in so many different ways. But one of the things that really did stick in American culture among migrants from this area is this beer drinking culture. Uh, Obviously, it was affected somewhat. We don't have the presence of many beer gardens. We have some. We don't have, uh, in the U.S., it's a little less, bars are not necessarily considered a place to bring your family, whereas that was more the case for these migrants. But overall, they have really created our brewing industry. They really did create our brewing industry as it stands. Okay. I have a few more kind of follow-up finishing up questions. 
some of the main like takeaways and lessons you've gained from your study that you think are important in today's society. And I guess kind of building off that too, um, in recent years there have been calls for boycotts against certain either breweries or uh, types of beer. Uh, I can think of like Yingling and Budweiser more recently. Um, do you see any parallels between those boycotts in the United States and the boycotts you've been studying? Yeah, there, there are definitely parallels. They are done for ostensibly political reasons. Um, they are done for, well, the boycott of Yingling, I would not hesitate to say it was some of the things behind that were nationalists. However, I hate to draw direct comparisons. I do see a great, great many parallels between past and present. If I go a little bit more broadly outside of recent boycotts and such, and I'll get back to beer in a second here, but I see great parallels between, when I say great, I mean large or important parallels, between between nationalist activism of that time and current nationalist sentiments and, and how that ties into xenophobia and anti-immigrant sentiments. I think that you can really look at the time period I study and the current time period and draw draw innumerable comparisons. But on some level, and this is going back to beer, this is something I, I, I was actually really thrilled last summer when Anheuser-Busch temporarily renamed their flagship product Budweiser as American. It, it, it was an obvious advertising gimmick and, and really, I think, of questionable taste on some levels. But the beer was founded by German immigrants. It was largely brewed by Central European immigrants. It was used, they, they prided themselves, not so much anymore, but initially especially, they prided themselves on using like Sazer hops, which came from Bohemia, and German malt, and things like that. All of these, quote, foreign ingredients. So it's really kind of difficult to deny that the, the layers of symbolism involved in this temporary rebranding effort of this formerly very foreign product as now America. Yeah, that is fascinating parallel between like the nationalistic views. I guess kind of two other questions to finish up. I know you've given a number of lectures and conference papers recently on your topic. I'm just kind of curious, what has the reaction been amongst academics to some of the things you're finding in terms of ethnic identity and the transfer of that kind of stuff from Europe to the United States? I've been really fortunate. I've been very fortunate in that the findings I've presented so far have been well received wherever I've presented I think it certainly helps to have beer as a focal point. It, it catches people's eye fairly quickly. And, and actually, one of the things that, it's, that has excited me the most is, is the fact that I'm able to broaden my audience so I can reach both scholarly and more general audiences. And I hope to be able to really uh, use that in the future. Definitely. I think bringing the public into this topic is really a fascinating way to use beer to get at history in a, in a new way that people might not have found interesting otherwise. Exactly. That, that is my hope. And, and so far, I've, I've talked with a couple informal beer connoisseur groups, and they, they seem to really, really enjoy learning about the history, and thus they learn a bit about nationalism and a little bit about how we got to where we are right now, both in the U.S. and in the Czech lands. I guess the kind of the final wrap-up question is, I believe you have a, like a year or so left until you defend your thesis. So what kind of things are you looking to add to it still? And then once that is completed, what do you have planned next for this kind of project, and where do you see it going? Well, obviously, uh, right now my focus is 
writing, tied to my computer writing as often as possible. And I am currently working on my third chapter, which is the one about the brewery workers' unions. And I'm, I'm, actually, I'm going to add a quick research trip to Washington, D.C., because the Teamsters Archive just made public their collection for the uh, United Brewery Workers of America, which is very exciting to me. But beyond that, obviously my goal, I'm working, getting to where I can defend my dissertation and enter the job market, and, and then obviously turn this into a monograph. But beyond that, there are so many possible offshoots of my dissertation that would be really interesting topics for further study. So if I had to pick one if, at the moment, I think the one that interests me most would be something about the ways in which the brewing industry followed colonial projects around the globe. Could you just expand on that a little bit because that sounds pretty interesting. Sure. Well, if you go to, well, I'm sure you've heard of Singtau Beer. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but Singtau Beer. It was founded by Germans in China. If you go to Argentina, you have German-founded breweries. Japan, although that was not necessarily a colonial project, but they built their brewing industry based on encounters. There's actually an excellent book that's been written about the Japanese brewing industry. But they, they built, they modeled their brewing industry on these very German and actually somewhat Czech influences. So that's kind of what I would like to study is how especially in tandem with colonial projects, like going to Africa. Um, I, in India, the British brought ale, right? They, they, they brought their ale, India Pale Ale. You have these new styles being developed out of colonialism. So this is the kind of thing, and it's obviously not very well formed, but I find it fascinating how it traveled the globe, how beer and brewing, beer, the brewing industry, and a certain style of brewing culture and beer culture traveled the globe with colonial projects. That sounds really exciting and interesting. I would love to read about that, too. Well, thank you again so much for joining us. It's been informative and very educational. I can't wait for it to be finished and I can read it again because it's such a fascinating topic. But, yeah, thank thank you. you so much. Thank you. This has been great. The Austrian American History Podcast is produced by the Botsteber Institute for Austrian American Studies, which seeks to promote an understanding of the historic relationship between the United States and Austria, including Capsburg, Austria. The Institute also awards fellowships and grants for academic research and publishes the Journal of Austrian American History. To find out more, visit www.botsteber.org or like us on Facebook at the Botsteber Foundation. Music by The Underscore Orchestra under Creative Commons BYNC SA license. Editing by Patrick Shank and Emma Parker Miller.